All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. Welcome to Learn Your English Podcast, brought to you by Learn Your English. And more importantly, how can teachers apply or, or make use of alignment in the classroom to help uh, learners acquire the second language? First, by, by having models, you know, we know that modeling is extremely important. We already mentioned it earlier in this podcast. Authentic input is important because that's uh, where people get their models from and what they can align to. Excellent language learners. Some of them were, were just brilliant. They, they, as said, they took every opportunity they got to align to their partner. And they did this much more strategically than just um, having it overcome them, basically. In that sense, an input flood. So yes. where, where something has been used a lot, you can use it. And I think it's mainly to train structures in a more authentic, in a more task-based environment, rather than giving them exercises to use yes. progressive form. I mean, give them all the models and tell them to continue on it. And they will, I, I bet you, they will use it. Even the structures that they tend to avoid. Teacher Talking Time is created with support from you, our listeners. If you like the show, you like what we do, please subscribe in your favorite app, tell a friend, and leave us a review. Believe us, it goes a long way. If you're interested in contributing to the creation of the show, we also have a tip jar on Patreon. The link to that, all our social media, and our website is in the show notes. For more resources on today's topic, you can check out our podcast page online, learnyourenglish.net slash podcast. Thanks for listening. And now, back to the show. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Angela from Columbus, Ohio, and you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast brought to you by Learn Your English. Today, I'm here with somebody that I truly admire, not only as a researcher and a leading expert on the field of task-based language teaching and learning, second language acquisition, second language pedagogy, digitally mediated language to learning and alignment, but she's also a very good friend of mine who I think is an extraordinary human being. She is a language teacher, a language learner. She speaks Dutch, German, some Italian. I don't know the level of proficiency yet. She's worked as a lecturer and researcher in Germany where she's also completed her postdoc at the University of Mannheim. She was not only she wasn't satisfied with that, and she decided to pack her bags and move to the UK, where she worked as a lecturer at Lancaster University. And because she's such an adventurous person, she decided to leave the UK post Brexit to move to the idyllic Groningen, where she is based right now. She's just got the position of chair of language learning at the Department of European Languages and Culture. So help me in welcoming the one and only Dr. Mariah Michelle. Hello. 
Hello, Leo. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm, um, I'm flattered, honored. I'm, I'm not easily speechless, so I'm not speechless, but uh, thank you for that introduction. I, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's really nice to be here and I, I, I love being able to talk a little bit about what I do and what drives me in research and teaching. So mm -hmm. thank you. Yeah, no, thanks for accepting the invitation. Um, I think this is a very important question for me to ask is how are you coping with what's happening at the moment in the world? Oh, yeah. Um, I must say I'm in a really fortunate position because in the Netherlands, we're not um, in a total lockdown in that sense. We're allowed to go out. We are allowed to uh, be with our family. Um, we can roam. Uh, we're just, um, we're adopting something that we call social distancing. Um, I'm here with my small family, so I have a, a partner uh, who is Italian, so that's why I speak Italian, um, and a six-year-old daughter. Um, she goes to school usually, but luckily they haven't given us loads of uh, schoolwork, so uh, she can do a little bit of tasks, but we don't need to do things. And me and my partner, we just split up the days in who's working when, and um, we do the best what we can. And, um, but I also must say that I, I try to appreciate the time that we have been given mm -hmm. and, um, I don't want to feel stressed all the time. And that's, uh, that's what we try to do. And I think that's a very important message because I find that a lot of parents right now, they are probably feeling overwhelmed, especially those who have kids at home, um, because all of a sudden, everyone has to become or had to become a teacher and do some sort of homeschooling. And I think we were talking about this uh, before we started recording the podcast, that um, this idea of, of kids joining a virtual classroom may not be the best idea. And I think we were talking about this. I honestly don't have a lot of expectations of my children attending those um virtual classrooms. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think we should be really emphasizing or we should be forcing our children to still be, um, you know, attending classes or going to school? I, I think it's not about going to school. So if, if kids want to reconnect with their friends and with their teacher, I think that's really nice. We actually had a Skype meeting with uh, my daughter's teacher yesterday, which was really nice. He was just mm -hmm. asking, so how are you? And I miss you and things like that. Um, my stepfather didn't go to school for four years during the war, right. um, and he's still, you know, he, he got a good job. He, 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 he did well in life. Uh -huh. I'm really not worried about a couple of months of our kids not going to school. Um, I must say that this, uh, holds for those people that are in a fortunate position. Absolutely. I'm very much worried about kids that are not in a safe home that are not in a context where um, parents can support yeah. their being and being happy. Um, but those parents who think I generally have something nice to offer to my kids, uh, don't be so stressed. You know, it's, it's, it won't be, everybody is currently in that sense, delaying mm -hmm. their learning. So we'll be at the same page. And if, if we're not trying too hard, all of us, for the next three months to to keep things going but just enjoy and and try to connect and build our kids um 
enthusiasm and interest and, mm -hmm. and, and curiosity and to come out of this happy, yes. I think gained a lot. Oh, absolutely. I think, and we talked about this, um, survival and protecting our children's uh, well-being, mental health should come first as opposed to filling in the gaps with those worksheets that they're receiving. And again, I'm not trying to offend anyone by saying this, but happiness is definitely more important than um, attendance or, or math worksheet management. You know, like you said, education doesn't have to necessarily happen only in the classroom. If the children are reading, if they're playing outside, if you're reading to them, like you said, your, your grandmother, that grandmother is reading to your daughter. Um, and as you said, like you have a garden, if they're playing in the garden, I mean, watching a fun movie as a family every night. I mean, there are so many different ways in which we can be educating our children that does not involve math homework, worksheets. And it's, um, I, I mean, we, we've, been, uh, we've been in the lucky position to have, um, how do you call it, tadpoles? Is mm. it tadpoles? Like we, we, we collected them and we have now a, a little bathtub outside in the garden. And my daughter was just jumping up the garden this morning because they've come out of the, I really don't know this vocabulary in English, I'm sorry. So they've come out of the eggs, is that? So then now we have little tadpoles swimming around. Okay. And, and I mean, she can have lessons on, on metamorphosis in, in school, mm -hmm. but seeing it on a daily basis happening, I think that makes a much more uh, or is a much much more important um, experience in her life. And yeah, and with math, I mean, I've been baking bread and cakes and everything, and and she can now read the the scale. You know, when I fill mm -hmm. the flour, then she knows how much we need to add. So so you can do math in many different ways. I think this is, what you said is very interesting because. I feel like a lot of this connects to the first topic of our of our interview, which is this idea of learning by doing, not learning about things, right? Especially in the classroom, in an English classroom, in a language, foreign language environment where a lot of time is spent talking about the language, but not really talking in the language. And a lot of your research, and this is how we met, we met at a task-based language teaching conference, uh, which was, a was it about a year ago? It was, I think, August last year. August yeah. last year. So it's going to be a Ottawa. year soon in Ottawa. Yeah, I can't believe it's been a year. Um, and task-based language teaching is one of your areas of expertise. And perhaps we could talk about this, this first myth, which is instruction, that people can only learn with instruction. So my question to you is, what is the role of instruction in task-based language teaching? Can we learn a language without a teacher? Why are we still using textbooks? Yeah. Um, can we learn a language without a teacher? Just to get back to that first question. Yes, for mm. sure. Um, I mean, learning actually doesn't happen in the classroom. Learning happens in a uh, learner's mind. So learning, I mean, that's a very cognitive perspective and I come from a cognitive perspective. Um, so in a cognitive perspective, learning is really something that happens in your brain. So you make new connections, uh, what we would call for meaning mappings mm -hmm. between um, the meaning of something you want to express and the language you need. So the form you need to express that. Um, and as a 
teacher or as an instructor, we can support making those form meaning use mappings. Um, but the learning itself happens in the learner. Now there are different ways of making those connections or supporting those connections. And there is where you come, the social component comes in. So from a more social uh, perspective on learning, it's the, the social constructivism. So mm -hmm. co-construction of meaning and form and use. Uh, and that's where language is very important because you, you make those connections through interaction with people Language is a communicative act in the end, so you you hardly ever use language just for yourself. Um, and there is a role for the teacher in that, in supporting to provide environments where you can make those mappings. Mm -hmm. But yeah, a short answer to to uh, your question: uh, Can learning happen without a teacher? Yes, it does. It's always without a teacher. The learning is something that's without a teacher but instruction can help making good connections or mm -hmm. valuable connections or making those ma those connections probably a bit faster right as you said so the role of the teacher is basically to support to facilitate or as you said to provide meaningful opportunities for people to actually engage in meaning communication and I don't believe that, I don't think this actually happens um, as much in the classroom, especially when most of the classroom time is spent talking about the language. And I think that's the other problem that we have is with a lot of published materials. So my question to you then would be, if we don't use textbooks, then what's, what's the starting point for the teacher? Um, the starting point for the teacher would always be the needs of the learners and Mike Long has been a, a strong proposed proponent of that or advocate of that of what mm -hmm. we call a needs analysis and saying that if you want your learners to learn and to be motivated to learn you need to find out what they need the language for and a needs analysis will help you to find out what they need it for now um, most of the time learners need the language to communicate to communicate in right. the end so they um i mean th there is there's some um context where you could think of different um needs so some people just learn the language to pass a test because then they can do something else or they can right. enter university um and if you think for yeah but but and if you think, for example, about uh, ancient languages, classical languages like Latin and Greek, uh, you don't need that to communicate, although there are communicative approaches to those languages now as well. But you, there it's not about communication, you would be about comprehension and understanding texts. But right. for most of the learners, I'd say the main reason to learn a language is to be able to communicate in that language. And so if you have those needs in mind, that's where you can guide and provide opportunities your learners to get there. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny you mentioned um, other languages. I remember studying Latin in university for two years, and there was very little communication happening in those classes. Basically, what we did was we would just do a lot of contrastive analysis and a lot of tr what we call the grammar translation, right? So we would translate texts, but with the, with the sole purpose 
to just basically write a translator version of the text. And as you said, I don't think our learners need is actually to translate texts. A lot of the people who learn a language, and as you said, language is a social activity. It's, it's all based on interaction. So interaction then is an essential component, would you say, inter when it comes to learning a language? So interaction, um, and um, what else would be an important component of learning a language? You said motivation, but the motivation comes from knowing your needs. Why are you going to learn this language? What would be the third component then? Would it be input? Um, I mean, input is, I think there's no single theory in language acquisition that, uh, that contests the role of input. Okay. I mean, even if you, you know, Chomsky in theory, um, mm -hmm. usage-based theories, um, Oh, yeah, also older or theories, input plays a major role. You cannot learn language without input. Um, it depends a little bit on, on what type of input you think right. is essential. So um, in a task-based approach, you would think that the most important and the most meaningful input is authentic input. So you that. need to have seen a lot of models of how people actually use the language um, and you can learn from that. Um, in many ways, it is tied also to what we would call usage-based perspectives. Yes. So where you say, okay, you learn through uh, seeing uh, models a lot. And basically our, our brain does the statistical learning and extracting patterns itself. Mm. So um, you need input. Definitely you need a lot of input and you need good input and ah. i think that's where the role of the teacher is also important that you say okay mm. the kind of input that students receive that's where you as a teacher can make the selection and say okay i have now currently a one level students so the type of input they receive should be doable for them mm -hmm. and it's it's important that that input happens and i think i mean at at a one level at the very beginning, input is probably everything you give them. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I was going to ask, because you said this, I'm, I'm always thinking about this idea of input. And I find that the best input is usually authentic. But we should never, I don't believe in this idea, and I don't subscribe to this idea that we should modify input. Because the moment you're modifying input, you're attaching a little bit of bias to it. So instead of modifying the input, would it be better to just modify the task? So basically grading the task, but not grading the text. What's your, what's your take on this? Um, I think you can modify input in the sense of, um, I, I'm sorry, I have to think a little bit about how, okay. how I would say this. <laughs> Um, I think there's nothing wrong with modifying input as long okay. as you uh, do not take away the challenge. Uh. So students, most of our students uh, thrive by the idea of trying something they, they think, oh, that's quite difficult to do. I mean, yeah. some students who have a very um, harsh learning biography or negative learning biography, they might be put off by this. But most students, if they see something that they cannot do, they kind of want to find out on how to, how to do things. So if you were 
authentic input. Um, I said your role as a teacher is to make a selection of what input you give them. Right. You can't grade it in the sense that you um, you you provide more supports, and I think that's something you were uh. you were uh, going to. So, if you use a lot of authentic input, that's probably at a slightly too high level for your students. Instead of making the input easier, you can give them more support so that yes. they can. Uh, work with the authentic material but with the support you give them yes. and to give a very concrete example so if they are watching a movie and you think this is way too difficult for them um, I mean do give them the subtitles so yeah. they can actually read along and stop it once in a while or start using um, I mean there's so many tools now that you can basically slow down the speech yeah. So you can have them listen to slow down uh, information, which is still authentic, but it's more doable for them. Or you give right. it in pieces. So yeah, so, so there are many ways to make things easier and, and graded by keeping the input authentic, but giving more support. So that's another role for the teacher there then, is to scaffold, scaffold to provide meaningful opportunities for interaction. I think my other question, and this is a question that I received from one of our listeners, is what is the role of grammar instruction in task-based language teaching? And again, the reason I ask is because a lot of the times what my students have said to me, have complained to me about, is that now that we've moved to online lessons, all I'm getting is a one-hour lecture on the present perfect. So what's, what's, your, what's your take on this? I mean, I don't know if I could sit through that lecture. An hour of no. perfect, perfect online, I think it's too much for me. I mean, I actually don't think you need an hour to explain present perfect. And it's much more feasible to make short movies where you explain the present perfect. And then actually students can watch that themselves before class. And you can use the class for something else, for meaningful interaction. Um, I one of the one of the reasons why task-based language teaching appeals to me is that it does give a role to grammar mm -hmm. and so if you look at the history of language teaching it started with a very focused grammar approach grammar translation then it was the whole um i'm now doing this very fast so, okay, don't but, worry. We so for a grammar safety. approach there was the other end we were going to a fully communicative approach input right. is all that matters you should not give any grammar at all and i think task-based language teaching draws on uh, the good points of both of it is saying yeah, mm -hmm. if you give grammar at the moment that it is meaningful and useful and at a moment in time where students can actually focus their attention to it, then it has great value. Yeah. But, um, and that's your other role as a teacher is to, to pick the right moment to provide the grammar. So it is good to give grammar. I wouldn't pay a teacher that never explains any grammar. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Developing as a teacher isn't easy. It's even more challenging doing it solo. If you are looking to join a passionate community of teachers who love to learn, then the Learn Your English teaching membership can help. The Learn Your English membership allows teachers to develop what they want when they want to through monthly challenges, webinars, reflection tasks, 
and application to your individual teaching context, the membership brings like-minded people together from all around the world. If you love improving and taking risks in education, then join their growing community of teaching professionals today. Find out how at learnyourenglish.net backslash memberships. Hey guys, I'm Sophia Shanahan from Venezuela, living in Canada, and you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Hola amigos, mi nombre es Sofía Shanahan, soy de Venezuela y vivo en Canadá, y estás escuchando Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. And that's your other role as a teacher is to, to pick the right moment to provide the grammar. So it is good to give grammar. I wouldn't pay a teacher that never explains any grammar, you know, because that's part of, of teaching is to, to provide that structure in language. I mean, one of the things that I often say to my students, I, I teach on the Masters of Applied Linguistics here at Groningen University, and I also did so at Lancaster University. And um, grammar wasn't invented to punish millions of learners. That's not the role of grammar. Um, grammar is there to show that language has some structure. Yeah. And it can be helpful to draw learners' attention to those structures. Um, you and I, we both like language. Mm -hmm. um, and most people who are language teachers, they are also in that sense, probably language geeks. They love the structure in language and they're good at it. And, uh, but there are a lot of people out there, learners out there that do not have this um, fascination for structure in language. And, again, and we've all come across people who are not good language learners or think they're not good language learners. And it's, oh, I hate language because it's all full of irregularities. Now, that's not true. Language has tons of patterns in there. Yes. And I think helping students to see those patterns that's the role of grammar. Mm -hmm. So if, if they look at models and they see authentic language and then they try to come up with it and then manage, and they don't manage right away, they struggle a little bit and they say, you know, actually there is a pattern in there and the mm -hmm. pattern is A, B, C. Right. And that's how you can give grammar when it is needed and when they notice that it's uh. useful. I think that's what I was going to say is that a lot of the times when people ask me that question, I, I give, I don't give as good an answer as you have given me, but it's usually that grammar is not something that you teach preemptively. It's something that you teach reactively. As, yeah. as soon as you start noticing the gaps in the language, that's when students are going to be like, ha, huh, I don't know how to say this. And that's when the teacher chimes in and says, here's some good language that you could use to actually achieve a certain outcome, depending on, of course, the task, um, yeah. which brings me to another point, which is the role of repetition. We find that when you follow a synthetic syllabi, uh, when you're following a, a discrete item uh, teaching, when you're just basically teaching grammar points in linear fashion, students are not often provided with enough opportunities to, to try the same thing again. And I think that's one of the most important things, I think one of the most attractive things about task-based language teaching is, is the role of, of repetition. I think my question to you then is, why is repetition so important in task-based language teaching and in learning a language? I think repetition is, is the basic of learning. 
you can't learn something by just encountering it once. So if you want to learn, so and again, drawing on a more cognitive approach and, and thinking of, okay, you're building up a new connection between for meaning and use. Um, in order to strengthen that connection, you need repetition. So encountering something just once will not make you able to use it, but encountering it often will enable you to see a pattern or to learn the pattern and to establish that pattern. And that's basically what I think it means to have learned something. So repetition is important um, just from a, from a learning perspective in, in terms of how I think, again, our brain works. Um, but it also has all kind of effective uh, um, reasons why repetition is important. So if you give students the opportunity to do something once and they fail, they have a negative emotion towards it. But if you give them actually a second opportunity or a third opportunity, um, they will notice that they get better, better at it. And that's what we do ourselves. I mean, as teachers, you know, if you're teaching three parallel classes, that the second time your course is slightly better than the first time you did it. So your second group just improves because you've done it again and you know what to focus on and what not to focus on. The same um, applies to the second child, by the way. Yes, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I only have one, so I don't know. <laughs> but, but you learn from repetition. Right. And I mean, what teachers sometimes say, oh, but I can't have my students do the thing again. It's always the teacher. It's always the, we, we, my experience has told me that it's the teachers who find repetition boring, not the learners. Would you agree yes, with that? Learners, learners tend to really like the opportunity to do it again. And if you think, I mean, it's, I think it's also a great way of being inclusive in your language classroom with dealing with different levels of students. Mm -hmm. So if you give them task repetition, um, those kids that could do it the first time, you can make it more challenging by slightly changing the topic or, mm. or giving a slightly different situation to do the same again. But those kids that are uh, also adult learners such as that, that need a repetition, they can just do the same again. So it is a great way of, uh, yeah, of tailoring your teaching to different levels in the same classroom. Yes. And um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, task repetition, it's, I love it. I, I use it in my, my classroom a lot. So, so they do a lot of um, like speed dating uh, things where they, they tell about a picture to one partner and then they swap partners and they do it again. And I give them a reflective moment to think about the kind of structures they would need to do it better. And then they go into the third round so when you so let's let's just circle back a little bit here. So when yeah. you're doing the speed dating, so you do it the first time, you're noticing language, and then before you do it a second time, what do you do in between those two stages? Because that's something that a lot of teachers ask questions about. Yeah. So so I'm I'm teaching German at university level. So okay. um, and German for Dutch native speakers is quite close. So it's it's not that hard in that sense. Um, so I spend, uh, usually I give them a minute or so to think about, okay, what kind of language was difficult to use? What kind of difficulties did I have? I also give them um, sometimes a task to reflect back and think, okay, what did you hear in your partner's language that might be useful for your own contribution? That's good. And then um, we go into the next round. I sometimes also give them cards, word cards with expressions 
um, that are helpful and then they have to swap cards so that the first time they use these three expressions and then they need to give the cards to the other partner and they have to do the same task, but they need to use different word cards this time, different expressions. So that it's in that sense, meaningful for them mm. to actually do it again with right. a slightly, yeah, uh, altered task or a slightly different task, but um, yeah, but they can still work on the same thing again. Right. Which brings me to the next point, which is this idea of the, the CAF, right? The complexity, accuracy, and fluency in language to production. Um, a question that I received uh, prior to this interview was from a teacher who said, when I'm doing a task, should I focus on all three? Should I focus on just, com on just fluency and accuracy? When I do a task repetition, should I add more complexity to that task? So I would like to get your take on this. Mm. Yeah, I mean, complexity, accuracy, and fluency are interconnected. And that's basically also the main idea, I think, behind uh, Skian's take on complexity, accuracy, and fluency. So, so Peter Skian, he has written quite a lot about this. And um, in his perspective, there are trade-offs. Mm. So learners, in the first round, we'll focus on, on, on uh, getting the meaning through. So a lot of it will be just getting, getting the lexicon basically out there, right. getting it, putting it into words. Um, and you can train different aspects. So complexity, accuracy, fluency, um, and you, with different tasks. Right. So, uh, if you want to train fluency, you can actually do that by um, yeah, limiting time. So, so there's the method by, I think it was Paul Nation who Paul brought Nation. it forward, like the 4-3-2 method. So you have to do the same task. First time you have four minutes, then you have three minutes, then you have two minutes. Now that's typically something that would improve fluency. Um, you can play around with complexity more in sense of um, putting in more high stakes. Mm. Such so, as, like, for example, with the speed dating, for example, what could be a um, you have to find just, a person to get to marry at the end of this, <laughs> something like that, maybe. No, I, I was more thinking at uh, putting it in a more formal situation, for example. Ah. So, the first time you're doing it with a friend, and the second time uh, you're doing it with your teacher, and the third time you're actually doing it at a job interview. Mm. So, that puts in more, uh, more high stakes. And what you will typically see is that um, students, they differ in whether they focus more on accuracy or whether they're more risk-taking and will try out new things and probably try more complex aspects of language. But again, you can, you can play around with that in saying, okay, um, I'll challenge you now to use a set of expressions that you haven't used before. And, and you have to do that, for example. So that's part of the task that you take those risks and don't bother about the accuracy right now, but focus on the complexity. But it, I think the, the, as always, the, the golden midway is that you use it as a teacher um, in different ways. So it's your choice as a teacher and that's your role as a teacher that you say, okay, now we're actually going to focus more on fluency. Now we do this type of task because that will elaborate your complexity. And we now we use this type of task because that will enhance your accuracy. Would you be explicit about that? Would you be like, okay, guys, the focus now is going to be on fluency. I want you to do this in four minutes. I want you to do this in three minutes. 
now let's focus on accuracy. Let's try again, just to going back to your, because mm. I think you wrote a chapter on the Routledge Handbook of Instructive Second Language Acquisition, and you have a yes. chapter there, chapter four, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I read it recently. Uh, You've done it was, your homework. I've done my homework. And you define accuracy as the degree of deviancy from a particular norm. So deviations, basically. Like you're, what, what normally a person would say, oh, I don't like to do friends. You, normally, that's an accuracy mistake. It should be, you should be able to make friends. Um, and complexity for you would be then what? How elaborate it is? I mean, complexity, we usually make a distinction between lexical complexity and more structural, morphosyntactic, mm. so sentence building complexity. Um, so, like using, and sorry? I was going to say, like using complex sentences, using, using more complex sentences, using more subordinate, and at higher levels would be more elaborate noun phrases, right. um, things like that. I think that this really depends also on the level you're working with so um and i think i mean in supporting learning um we all know those learners that won't say a thing unless it is completely correct yes so and then it, we also know those others <laughs> that don't care about accuracy and they they just say something and you have a hard time understanding them um so it's also yeah, you know your students and, and know mm -hmm. your students and, and actually tell them what to focus on more. So I'm, I'm teaching at university. And again, I think academic learners uh, should be self-responsible in many ways. Mm -hmm. So I, I do tell them upfront, like, okay, now we're going to work on something that is based on fluency. Okay. Or I sometimes also explain them, say, this is actually, we're doing this because there's an important paper research that has shown that this works to encourage you to elaborate your complexity. Right. So I, I am, I'm doing that. I, I'm not sure everybody can relate to that. So all learn, learners might differ in that, but I, I think you can, you can give individual um, teacher instructions mm -hmm. in in telling you saying you know you know you have an issue with accuracy so i i know you are you're someone who's a risk taker but now really take some time and try to be accurate just try it for once so, so i'd i'd use it in that way especially if their mental model as you said a lot of students their mental model is i'm an extrovert i'm just gonna get my message across whereas others have a completely different model so i i the reason why I asked you is because I am in favor of actually being explicit yeah. about saying, let's focus on accuracy. Let's do the same task, but now let's focus on your accuracy. Let's try to think about all those mistakes because again, you can't really fix your mistakes and become more accurate if you don't notice those things, right? So, yeah. so working with their mental models, I think would help. So perhaps being more I mean, explicit. one of the... Sorry to interrupt. No, no, you. go ahead. <laughs> so, yeah. so one of the things I also sometimes use is I, I let students make a recording of their first uh, performance, good. and then they need to transcribe that and correct their uh, it's a work on their accuracy, and then they get a second round when they can actually uh, try to do it in a more accurate way. Actually, I this is this is from you this came from you i don't know if you remember but we had a conversation i was doing uh presentations with a, a low level group of students and the presentation topics were 
with all due respect, they were like high school, grade school, mid school, I would say, um, topics. They're like, talk about a famous person in your country. I'm like, this is not a topic for adults. I asked everyone, what's your background? What do you want to do your presentation on? So we had people with PhD in physics. I said, okay, why don't you talk about the theory of relativity? I don't know. They all picked topics that were related to their future needs in the language. They did it the first time. Of course, the first time they did their presentations, it was terrible, even though we had prepared. Yeah. Um, but I gave, we recorded those presentations. I gave them specific feedback and their homework was, you're gonna watch your presentation and you're gonna do that reflection piece that you said. like. What areas of your presentation you are not content with? What areas would you like to improve on? They submitted to me and I said, okay, we're going to do the second pres the same presentation a second time two weeks later. The second presentation was way better than the first one. I wish we had time to do a third one because the third one I would focus more on complexity. It would probably be something like add an extra slide. You know, mm -hmm. or maybe use different language when you're transitioning from one slide to another. So I think there is a lot of value in doing that, Marie. Yeah, yeah, and I I couldn't agree more. I gave you the idea, so that's probably why. But <laughs> <laughs> sorry for that. Um, um, I I work a lot with repetition also in that sense. So so and and have students reflect on their own performance. Um, it was interesting. I just received my course feedback of the last course on German I taught, uh -huh. and um, they had to uh, write a um, a review of a series that I've been watching. So part of it that they part of it is of the course is that they have to on a weekly basis watch a TV series in German, and they write a weekly blog on it and then oh, nice. at the end they have to hand in a a review of that series to kind of say do, do i recommend to watch this this series yes or no and um in in getting there they first uh, they write the blog then they write the first version of a of a review they get peer feedback they write the second um version of the review they receive again peer feedback and then they uh, hand it in and I grade so their final version is the one I grade the third version right third version yeah so the third version is the one I grade so they've received two times uh, peer feedback mm. and um, the common generic was that they would have wanted to have more feedback from me um, on because they found peer feedback difficult um, and not as useful so they wanted to have teacher feedback um, but then again, because these are university learners, I really think they should be able to do things themselves and look it right. up themselves and become diligent and conscientious and, and uh, work on it. Um, I think in the next round, so this is my task repetition, if I'm going to teach this class again, I would focus a little bit more on training students how to give feedback to each other. So huh. there's this great paper by um, uh, Masatoshi Sato and Okay. Uh, I think Sean Loven on a metacognitive instruction where they taught their students how to uh, give oh. uh, more valuable feedback to each other. And I think that's really important. So, um, it's a transferable I, I, skill. Yes, yes. And it's, so I'm still, it won't be me who gives all the feedback because uh, I don't, also because they're graded on their own um, performance and it should right. not be. Yeah, if I correct or give give all the all the feedback, um, then then they all come out with excellent pieces. Mm -hmm. So they have to work on it themselves. 
um, but probably training students to be more productive in giving uh, each other feedback is is a good idea. Yeah. Have you tried working with checklists? That's something that I've been doing with my low level students. Like they, because I'm sure you probably provided them with a model of, of a show review. Yes. And then you do a little bit of a genre analysis. You look at the, the kind of language that they use, mm -hmm. you know, the Lexis, this and that. And then when they write their own, one of the things I've been doing with my students is I give them a, a checklist. Did mm -hmm. I include this? And I, what I've noticed is very few students actually use the checklist. The ones yeah. that do, the ones that do, their writing is somewhat decent. The ones that yeah. don't are not able to self-regulate. So I think what you said, I think there is value in really training students to do that. Yeah. I mean, what we do actually is that when they hand in a written piece, they usually have to uh, state what areas of language they focused on based on the mm. feedback they've received so far. Okay. So uh, if they've so it's received, very guided. yeah, it's very guided. And, and as you said, they receive tons of models. So, and we, we let them uh, extract useful language from the models and share that in a, in a, in a joint document for the whole mm -hmm. class That's amazing. so that they, um, yeah, get those expressions out that they, they need to write their own review. Yeah. Before we align on the topic of alignment, <laughs> I have one more thing to say. Because I th I saw yesterday on Twitter that you were um, you were you have a you you volunteer you're part of the the board of directors for for um, a refugee project in the Netherlands called the English Academy for newcomers, which is basically an NGO specializing in preparing newcomers to join um, higher education. And one of your webinars yesterday was on uh, online task-based language teaching. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what it's like to do task-based teaching online. Yeah, um, I mean, it was so nice. It was just so good. I hadn't seen uh, some of them in quite a while, so it was good to reconnect. Um, the organization I work for, and I'm sorry, I'm not really answering your question, but I want to give a little bit of, of more, more uh, context around this. So with the refugee crisis that's mainly started in 2015, we had a lot of people coming to the Netherlands, and but also the rest of Europe. And um, what we notice is that a lot of high educated people were among refugees coming here. And they are put into language classes that are uh, not at their level. So they're low level in Dutch, but they're uh, not, uh, not at a high level uh. for their purposes. And the other thing is that if you want to uh, join higher education or a decent job in the Netherlands, you need English. And the government in the Netherlands will not support English teaching for refugees so they want to support the national language so uh, they need to learn Dutch which is you know mm. reasonable I think and most refugees also think is reasonable but actually if they want to enter higher education or a, a professional career they need English because everything here happens in English at that level so uh, that's how the organization started and saying okay let's uh, provide English classes for those highly educated refugees who want to enter university or continue their career. And it's a volunteer organization, they're all volunteer teachers. Um, and as they're volunteers, 
um, they really have a very, very mixed background. So, I mean, we're very fortunate with the two lead educators uh, that run ran actually their own language school back in, in, uh, in Australia, I think, when they started. But some of them are PhD students in physics that, uh, that are good in English and they just wanna devote some of their time to supporting the learners. So some of them really have a very limited background in teaching and also very limited background in language teaching. So they tend to focus a lot on grammar exercises. Uh. And I really wanted to push them to do something more meaningful. So in the first step, we did a needs analysis. I was one of my master's students last year who did that, Thomas Middleton. And based on that, we found out what were the needs of our students. So we also invited or interviewed some alumni and we found out, okay, what they really need. Uh, it can be as basic as um, interacting with your teacher uh, or making a contribution to classroom discussions, um, understanding the lecturer, when you follow university classes, but it also goes up to, uh, you know, writing good academic papers. So um, yeah. we've been um, divide, uh, designing some material. It's Said Guk, who's a refugee himself, uh, who was uh, also running an EAP um, um, program in, in Turkey before he had to leave. Nice. And he's been designing these brilliant tasks that are really based on, okay, how do I actually go about um, yeah, participating in language classes in the class or, or in, in, in physics classes or in geography classes. And um, we're taking this now online, as I said, because everything needs to go online mm -hmm. now. And, um, <laughs> and, and with our population of students, it is even more important that um, some of them only have their phones. So they right. won't be able to do online learning on a computer because in the asylum seeker homes, um, the computer labs have been closed. So um, oh, wow. they, they don't have, um, in that sense, computer facilities. So it was really important to, uh, get the tasks um, basically almost mobile. So it's not online language learning, but mobile language learning. Huh. So we talked a lot about using WhatsApp, for example, to, um, yeah, to do tasks mm -hmm. and how to connect with uh, students on, on, on them um, recording vlogs and, and messages uh, on their phones that they submit on a, on a shared drive and um, yeah, so, so to rather than thinking that uh, online language teaching is two hours of online classroom time, and I think Fernando has talked about that earlier, um, that's just not going to work. And specifically not for our population of learners. Uh, you can't follow a lecture for two hours online on your phone. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Professional development has many faces. Workshops, webinars, conference presentations. What it shouldn't have is a lack of continuity. Research has shown that professional development initiatives have a lasting impact when they adopt an ongoing approach to professional development and not just a one-off workshop. Through our professional development model, teachers progress along a continuum of development 
while making connections to their teaching context along the way. As they refine their practice, they enhance their ability to be responsive to the learners and acquire skills which help further learning outcomes. If you're a school seeking an innovative, evidence-based, and bottom-up approach to teacher education in your institute, we'd love to talk to you about how our program works. Contact us online at www.learnyourenglish.com or by email at info at learnyourenglish.com. Hi, my name is Yasmin. I'm from Iran, and right now you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Salam. من یاسمن هستم اهل ایرانم و شما الان شنونده Teacher Talking Time Learn Your English Podcast That's just not going to work and specifically not for our population of learners uh, you can't follow a lecture for two hours online on your phone I, What I wanted to say about that is I met a woman at the Task-Based Language Teaching Conference last year Her name is Angela Sturzik, and she works at a college here in Canada, and she did a fascinating research. She basically interviewed a lot of professors, first-year university professors and college professors, and she asked them what are the expectations that they have of international students, and believe it or not, grammatical accuracy was not one of them, but it was no. just basically what? The ability to participate in the classroom, to communicate, to ask the teacher questions, so a lot of it has to do with this need to communicate, take notes, which are all, if you think about it, a lot of these are actually doable tasks. But a lot of what we're still doing in a lot of these EAP classrooms is teaching grammar explicitly. And a lot of it, so, so what I notice also, or what I know from, from teaching international classrooms also at, at Lancaster University, we have all those students that pass their IELTS and they might even have been brilliant on passing international tests uh, and um, but then they come and they can't communicate and they can't participate as much as they want to do so it's it's one thing to pass a test but it's another thing to be a good student and also again with our refugee population some of them really are not used to a more Western approach of learning and participating right. in class and an agency we, we expect of students. So it's not just giving them the language, but it's really also giving them um, the skills to, to, yeah, to become active learners themselves. I think that's the biggest shift that we need to to make in education. I think we have to move away from this transmissive model of teaching into something that is more self-directed and as you said, self-regulated because a lot of our students, they think that they can only learn if they are in the classroom with a yeah. textbook and with a teacher. A lot of my students, when we switched to our online classes, they said, Leo, I don't like online learning. And I said, online classes. And I said, why? Well, because we're not in the classroom and there's no textbook. And I don't know how to study, like, which basically goes back to show that a lot of them just don't know how to learn. Yes, yes. And, and that's, that's, I mean, we can't really blame them because probably no, no. they've never been invited to learn how to learn. So, um, and, and also, I mean, some people also learn a lot <laughs> yeah. uh, via more traditional ways of teaching. 
so or learning so so it's well um, how much of that is actually learning and how much of that is actually being able to regurgitate information i mean that's yeah. the question that i always ask yeah. myself and we were talking about this earlier today um prior to recording this is we should move our assessment also has to change especially if you're Definitely. doing task-based language teaching it has to move away from me testing what i think you've learned towards something that is like, how can I provide you opportunities for you to showcase what you have learned? So, yeah. yeah. And I find this actually really interesting because we had uh, huge discussions here over the mm -hmm. past uh, two, three weeks because all our teaching has gone online, but also all our evaluations have gone online. So our assessment, yes. um, because we were right at the end of a block and, and all of a sudden we had to do our assessment tasks um, online. And everybody was worried about plagiarism and mm. fraud and how Same. do we, what do we, see? so, and um, if you make assessment in such a way that it is personal, mm -hmm. so students have to talk about themselves and they have to write about themselves, they can't plagiarize because if all of a sudden all of them like the same quote that you ask them to pick from a paper or that you ask them to pick from a podcast or um, that you ask them to, to find in a video that they have been watching, then it is, yeah, it is really quite difficult. Yeah, it's a, it's I think for them indicator. to explain. Yeah. 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 So um, if you make assessment more personalized, and um, indeed ask them to, okay, make a vlog or write me a story about what you are uh, thinking about, or yeah, indeed, like write me your, your review of the mm -hmm. series that you like most and explain me why you actually like yeah. that. Um, you can also give points for their argument. And so it's not just the, the language that you look at, but also actually the organization and the way how they, they show and, and what they do. And in a yeah. sense, yeah, it's, it's, um, I, again, I'm in a position that we are at university where I think if students really think they can pass their studies with fraud, um, yeah, then let them do that. <laughs> but you see, Maria, this is one of the things I usually tell my students. I said, if you want to pass, everyone can pass. The question yeah. is, how many are actually learning? And that's what I tell my students is like, you don't have to attend. I'm doing, I'm doing online lessons every day. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've noticed this, but yes. you're feeling tired at the end of an online session. And we're still doing an online session right now for this yeah. podcast. But what I find is, and I tell us, I'm very clear with my students. I said, if you want to pass, don't even come. But if you want to learn, then I think you, you've come to the right place. Because mm -hmm. focus should always be on learning how can i be better today than i was yesterday how can i look at my writing today and be like you know what leo has given me very clear indications as to what i should change to make my writing better so i think that's the shift that mm -hmm. education needs is we need to move away from traditional assessment where we assess what we think they've learned as opposed to them showing us what they were capable of learning yeah yeah, I couldn't agree more. If if I if I had the powers to change uh, the national assessment practices in this country or in any country, I'd do so immediately. So to really to yeah, because 
as soon as you are able to change the assessment, you'll get a positive washback, yes. meaning that, that the teaching will also start teaching to the test. But if your assessment is good, teaching to the test is not bad. Yeah. <laughs> so that's well, what there we are hope. vested interests there that we can't really talk about in this podcast yes. for, for many, many reasons. So, uh, well, let's move on. I wanted to talk, I mean, we still have time, um, but I want to move on and talk a little bit about your current research projects. One of the things we've talked about is your current research on alignment. First of all, I think a lot of people don't know what that means. Um, I read the article by, by Gaho and Pickering, why conversation is so easy. And I'm going to ask you the same question. What makes conversation so easy? And what the heck is alignment? Because a lot of people will probably be asking the same question. Yeah. Um, alignment is, is basically at the heart of all our conversations. Alignment means that you, in English it's easy, it's aligned. <laughs> so that you agree on a certain set of um, concepts throughout a conversation why you are, uh, that that you are talking about. So in, in many ways, it's you align on a topic. So this conversation is about, um, yeah, about task-based language teaching and about alignment. So, and as you are agreeing on the content, on basically on the conceptual model of the conversation, what are you talking about? Um, it is very likely that your language will also get aligned mm -hmm. in the sense that, um, we will start using similar lexical items or so words and expressions, um, but we will also start using similar um, syntactic patterns, so sentences and phrases and, and the way how we build our sentences. And that is something that we don't do on purpose, at least um, uh. in native speaker conversation. We know from the research by Pickering and Garrett, but also uh, uh, more from a social uh, constructive perspective, Dwight Atkinson has wrote about, written about this. Mm. So it is natural that in the conversation, we agree on a set of concepts that we talk about, and this will push and pull out the same language that we use to talk about this and it's actually the the main idea behind alignment and and certainly uh pickering garrett's idea is that conversation is easy because we do that and it helps each other and just to give you an example if um you've gone to a major store that sells furniture and you tell me oh i just bought this new couch i said oh really tell me what's the color of your sofa that would be awkward because you uh, called it couch. So why would you all of a sudden call it sofa? And we do see this happening. So um, in more political discourse where people continuously non-align on calling people freedom fighters or, or terrorists. Right. So it can have a message and saying, okay, I'm, I'm on purpose not aligning to you. But in natural conversation, it is very, very normal to align. Huh. Wow. I was just thinking about that. Because, I mean, I would say my opinion is that conversation is easy. But conversation in a second language can be very difficult because there are many problems that are posed by, by the, the nature of, of a dialogue. For example, um, one of the things that uh, Garrett and Pickering talk about in the article is is this idea of conversations um, 
opportunistic planning. That's what they call it, uh, which is this idea that you cannot predict how the conversation will unfold. And if we think about it, like right now, we're having a conversation. You have no idea what I'm going to say next. I mean, we can have an idea, but learners don't have this. They don't know where the conversation is going. Normally, what learners get is what we call the IRF, interaction or initiation response feedback. That's the only kind of dialogue learners are somewhat exposed to in the classroom. There's also, Mariah, uh, he mentions appropriacy, like when it's okay for me to call my neighbor Bill, or you calling him my neighbor or my next door neighbor or just him, right? There's that. And he talks about the last one, which to me is the most interesting one, which is the interface problem, which is this idea that deciding when to speak, the right time for me to chime in, for me to interrupt you, you know, planning what to say next. So my question to you then becomes, how, how do interlocutors, how do people in a conversation achieve this common ground? in the course of an interaction. Is it only through alignment? Only lexical, uh, only syntax? So the, the, the basis of alignment is that it also pulls on a, um, or, I mean, there, there are different concepts in there. Right. So one important, more psycholinguistic approach of this is that it actually draws on activation and on a concept that is called priming. Mm. Now, oh, I was gonna ask priming is um, the idea that if I talk about a table, that uh, all kinds of lexical items in my brain will be activated. And um, based on that, um, you will process the word chair much faster because table activates the concept of chair already. Right. So it goes faster, it is easier. Um, so this is at the lexical level, but uh, the idea behind priming is that it actually affects all levels. Mm. So also uh, after hearing table, you will process table much faster because they say at the same time. So after table, you will process cable much faster because it's uh. Uh, the same word uh, on a phonological level. And the same holds also for syntactic patterns. So if you all of a sudden uh, start using um, passive voice, I will be able to come up with passive voice much faster myself because it has already um, primed, basically. Ah. So, so this concept of activation uh, plays a role in there. Um, there's... Okay, yeah. no, go ahead. I was going to ask you a question, but I, I will let you finish that part. <laughs> so there's also uh, the concept of, again, going more at the social level, social construct constructivism, um, in learners agreeing on how to call things, it's also part of creating rapport. Mm. So um, making sure you're speaking at the same level and that you're speaking about the same concepts. That's just part of human conversation. It is important that we talk about the same. And again, go, going back to the, to the uh, example of freedom fighters and terrorists, that's a conscious decision not to uh to agree on what you call things and that you right. don't want to have the same model uh, so that means i'm not I'm, I'm consciously choosing not to align with you yeah. probably because i have completely di a different agenda perhaps yes yes right yes interesting now and maybe because you were asking about second language learners and their role in there now for second language learners it's um there are a lot of reasons why this whole idea of alignment and priming might not work 
as easily and naturally and automatically as it works in first language. So in the first language, most research shows that unless you are in this example of, of the freedom right. fighters and the terrorists, but um, all the other things, they happen unconsciously or at least, at least automatically. You don't have to focus on it. It's something that happens naturally. Mm-hmm. But when you think of a second language learner, the idea of things happening naturally, automatically, implicitly is not really something we associate right. <laughs> with a second language learner. And there are all kinds of reasons why also interment this wouldn't happen. Mm. So if you come home and you talk about your no sofa, um, I might not remember when I want to talk about it, the word sofa again. I, I, I've, I've basically captured the concept but then i can't find the word anymore so i'd use couch because that's the one i know Mm. um so it might just be based on the limits of my own system second language system that i'm not able to align to what you're saying Um, how much does our working memory like what's the role of working memory in that because I, i think it also it's the ability to be able to remember that word right yeah, I mean that that's that's against so there. If you think of it in terms of activation and and in terms of of priming, um, how much can you keep active um, in a second language? Because you a lot of the processes happen uh, consciously. They're much more they're they're much slower. So um, by the time I'm actually getting to the point in the sentence where I could use a passive voice, probably the activation of, mm. of your passive voice use has already decayed. And I basically don't remember anymore. I don't, yeah, I, I, it's not there anymore. So, so probably those automatic alignment and priming uh, functions don't work that far because I'm just slower in a second language. Uh, so, but then a last point, and sorry, I want to yeah, yeah, make finish. I have a question. Is that um, as a second language learner, we have strategies, mm-hmm. and uh, an important strategy of learners is avoidance. Ah. So, um, uh, for example, uh, giving a reason in in Dutch, but also in German, you have two options. So in German, you can either use weil or den. And in Dutch, you can use want or omdat to introduce a, an, an, a reason. Okay. So following a sentence of because. Now, one of them comes with a subordinate clause, which means that you have to put the finite verb at the end of a sentence. And that's something complicated. Whereas if you use uh, want in Dutch or then in German, you can just go with uh, main sentence word order and that's much easier so quite often uh, second language learners might deliberately not align because they know um, it's much safer if i actually choose my own wording right they're all kind of strategic reasons and and underlying reasons why second language learners might not choose to align or just Mm. don't align because they can Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. You know, quality professional development is such an important part of the teaching industry, but it's surprisingly hard to come by. That's why I was so pleased to come across Learn Your English, a company providing online teacher education courses with a fresh perspective. My name is Erin, and I'm an English language teacher. After a decade in the classroom, I found myself teaching the same things in the same way. My learning seemed to have plateaued. 
I wanted to take charge of my learning and I really like how the online Learn Your English courses don't prescribe anything. They motivate me to reflect on my teaching and propose tactics and ideas I hadn't considered. If you're a language teacher wanting to learn inside your busy schedule, I highly recommend their online courses on Thinkific. Head on over to lyenetwork.thinkific.com. That's lyenetwork.thinkific.com. Take control of your education. You won't regret it. Hi guys, my name is Ethan from Korea. You are listening to Teacher Talking Time and the Learn Your English podcast. 안녕하세요. 제 이름은 에단이고요. 한국에 물론 한국인입니다. 지금 여러분은 Teacher Talking Time The Learn Your English podcast를 듣고 계십니다. Right. So there are all kind of strategic reasons and, and underlying reasons why second language learners might not choose to align or just mm. don't align because they can't. Okay, so I'm going to circle back a little bit here just to make sure people are following us. Alignment is a largely unconscious process, okay? Yes. It happens throughout. It only happens when you're interacting with another human being, another yeah. interlocutor. Okay, so you cannot align by yourself. You cannot align with yourself. Okay. You can. You can. You can. And that's actually what we see a lot. So people tend oh. to use the same phrases again and again. Oh. So, and, and that's also, yeah. We tend okay. to use our, oh, if we tend or to align using the same excuses for something. I don't exactly. have time. That's an example yeah. of alignment, I guess. <laughs> you can also align to reading. Huh? So if, you, if you've read something or you've, listened, you've been listening to a podcast, you can align to that one. You know, I was going to say that. I find that I was reading a certain writer. I was reading certain, certain papers from a certain writer while writing my research. And I noticed that I started using some of the same patterns that that writer was using in his own writing. Is that an, because that was the question, Mariah, is that does alignment occur both in written and spoken production? Yes. Yes. Okay. And actually there's, there's again, quite interesting research by Wang and Wang that looked at this and it's, it's a, a method that a teaching method that's used, I think in China and other Asian countries that they call continuation writing. Mm. where they um, ask students to finish a paragraph that was written uh, by, by, by an example. And uh. the idea is that you, by the first part of the text that you read, you are prompted and primed so much in terms of language that the second part that you write yourself is actually at a higher level uh, because you're primed or because you're primed by the language you've read and because you're aligning to the language you've read. So a lot of it, I mean, some people might relate this to uptake. So, so that's, that's something, I think, a similar concept. So you're just using your model, you're aligning to the model you receive. Okay, so we align lexically, repetition of certain words. We align our phrases, as you said, or chunks of language. We align syntactically. For example, if you use, if you say, for example, um, 10 people have been fired, then I'm more likely to use another passive sentence because I'm trying to align with your passive construction. Exactly. And you can align also phonologically. Yeah. Said. How does yeah. that work? You just did it actually. So earlier <sighs> uh, you introduced the paper by Pickering and Garrett as Pickering and Garrett. Oh, yes. And um, you aligned to me perfectly after I've mentioned it. Uh, it's been a recast in a way by me. Ah. Uh, so I deliberately did not align to yours. 
because I provided a recast on uh, your pronunciation and you picked it up unconsciously, so to see, or so yeah, to hear. That's true. I actually, I didn't know if he was French. I was like, I'm going to go with Garo. But then you right. said Garrett and I was like, okay. Oh yeah, that's so this is an example. Oh, wow. And I mean, at, 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 so, so this is pronunciation of a single word, but we also know that mm. um, in, in terms of uh, re really more at, at, at the phonological level. So, so if you, um, I can give an example of my own background instance, <laughs> okay. because I'm, so, so I, I am Dutch, but I was born and raised in Switzerland, right. in the German part of Switzerland. And in the German part of Switzerland, we usually speak a dialect. A German dialect, Swiss German. Does that have a name? Schweizerdeutsch, it's yeah. called. So, and um, so <laughs> when Swiss people uh, use standard German, they need to to use the German that is used in Germany. But right. it's definitely a way of speaking German that has a Swiss color. So um, I don't know if your listeners understand any German, but I can show you the differences. So, for example. Um, if I would speak standard German, it would sound like this. Or ich spreche jetzt Hochdeutsch, so wie man es in uh, in Deutschland spricht. And if I would say the same sentence in uh, Swiss-colored German, you would say ich spreche jetzt Hochdeutsch, so wie man es in der Schweiz spricht. Can you say And both if, again, very quickly? Um, standard. Ich spreche Hochdeutsch, so wie man es in Deutschland spricht. Und ich, 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 rede oder ich spreche jetzt Schweizerdeutsch oder Hochdeutsch, so wie man es in der Schweiz spricht. It's, they're slightly different. And it's completely different if I start using the dialect, which is, ich rede jetzt Schweizerdeutsch oder Hochdeutsch, so wie man in der Schweiz redet. So it's the same sentence, and the last one was the dialect, the middle one was the standard German as it's used in, Germ in Switzerland, mm -hmm. and the standard German, some of you might have even... Um, understood and what i noticed that because I, i can use those interchangeably um when i'm in germany i will always use the standard german of germany mm -hmm. when i'm in switzerland in a context where i need to use standard german i would never use the german version of it i would always right. use the swiss version of it because it's completely inappropriate to use German standard German in Switzerland. Huh. It, what I'm thinking now is this, because we align at many different linguistic levels, and as you said, simultaneously, what I find fascinating about the entire research on, on alignment is that this happens almost without any sort of explicit negotiation. Like what I'm thinking is like we didn't negotiate how to pronounce uh, Garrett or Garo. Um, and I feel like students, especially if they're trying to align with their teacher, if they're trying to align with a more, perhaps a more advanced student in the same class, I think they would do this without negotiating. Is that, am I right in assuming this? Yeah, and I, I mean, it, it's also one of the reasons which again shows why authentic input is so important. Because if you give authentic input, they have a model to align to. Mm -hmm. And uh, depending on the level of the student and depending on their strategies, they will be able to align more or less also on a conscious level. Uh. So 
we do have those exceptional language learners in the sense that make a language learning opportunity of every situation they're yes. in. I'm um, one of those. <laughs> yes. So you can always learn through aligning to your input. Mm. My other question, Mariah, then would be, what is the role of noticing in alignment? Because if you, I mean, it, yeah, I don't know. It's a good, I, I was thinking about that. Um, it's, I, I think it, it can be important, but it doesn't have to be important. So okay. in part of the research studies I've been doing, we've actually um, uh, let students align to each other uh, while they were really not aware of what they were doing. Really? So I have this one study with my uh, current PhD student, Laura Stiefenhofer, where we used this uh, in the Spanish classroom. And those of you who teach Spanish, you know that um, subjunctive in Spanish is typically something students try to avoid. You know, let's not go there because it's I never use subjunctive in my life and I yes. never want to. <laughs> <laughs> so what we managed to do is we gave one of our students or participants, we gave a set of sentences that included subjunctive mode. Okay. And we said, okay, in your conversation, you're free to use whatever you want to do, but chip in a couple of these sentences. And we did see that actually in those conversations that uh, had or were a couple of subjunctives were used by our instruction, not telling them you have to use subjunctive, we just said and use these sentences that contained actually a subjunctive. The conversation elicited more subjunctive mode. And that's because people aligned to themselves. So if they had a model with a subjunctive that they were asked to use, they would actually reuse another subjunctive in their own contributions. But also their partner picked it up and started to use subjunctive mood. Uh, so you can do that in a way that is really implicit and people, they didn't know. Now, others, they have picked up and they came at the end and said, this was about subjunctive mood, was it? And you uh, could see that noticing in that sense supports the learning because if they're more conscious about it, they will probably reuse it more explicitly. But you don't need it for learning. You don't need the the um the noticing in that sense mm. of of using it consciously or so now i'm going to use subjunctive but but yeah you draw on your partner anyway you'll do that so part of it is implicit but but explicit noticing helps yeah i think that's i was reading the jackson paper and, and he was talking about the role of she. noticing she okay she. good to know good to know carrie jackson I don't have the first name here. Good to know, Jackson. Maybe I'll get her on the podcast too. Yeah, um, you should. I think one of I think the study was she was basically saying that I don't know if I don't know if I remember this right, but it was like the detection of a structure was a necessary prerequisite for priming to occur. And she said and this is I want to get to the production part. Successful noticing of a very specific structure leads to the correct production of that structure. So it basically, it, the way I interpret it is that exposure is not enough. Learners also need to produce. Like you can read, 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 but if you're not producing anything, then you're not going to align. So when you think about the theory of alignment in your research, what is the role of production? And I, and I, again, I'm always thinking about pushed output, Meryl Swain. Mm. And should learners, so it's a twofold question, role of production, and should learners be trained to notice this language? 
uh, I think role of production is very important. I think it is, imp uh, you have to, again, pick the right time to get students to produce. Um, one of the tenets more from um, usage-based perspective is that if you get learners to produce too early, so when they're still not, in that sense, able to produce a lot, um, they might align too much to their own incorrect uh, sentences. So I think uh, in at early stages, input is way more important than at later stages. Mm -hmm. But again, I yeah, I mean, I've done quite a lot of research on writing, and you do see that writing pushes learning, and and production pushes learning because people really have to think, and they're much more conscious about thinking. Okay, how am I going to say this? And if you're not producing, um, you can stay in what what um, um, Bill and Patton would call the meaning oriented, uh, meaning first mode. You know, you you just do input processing, and uh, yeah, who cares about the structure? But as soon as you need to produce, you will have to start thinking about how to say things and how to put this into form. So yeah, production definitely pushes uh, learning. And I think alignment has a big chance in there because you give learners a chance to produce at an accurate level earlier. Because if they have to do something from scratch without any model, they might just try something. But if you give them a model to align to, it will be um, more productive, I think, more effective. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, one of the things I was going to ask you is, is it possible? Because I think the alignment theory comes from social behavior research, mm -hmm. I guess. Correct me if I'm wrong. And yeah. I, th I think it's, it's the per perception behavior expressway. Uh, and I, I was just reading about that and I found that fascinating that we, <laughs> a lot of our behaviors are automatically triggered by perceptions of actions in other people. For example, the way we, our, our facial expressions, right? Our movements, our gestures. And I was even reading, I don't know if you've read this, you probably have, but I was doing extra research on the social uh, behavior uh, research because I wanted to like, I want to move away from language. I want to learn more about the, the psychological uh, Psycho, yeah, psychological aspect of this. And they were, there was research in, in which participants were mimicking posture. And that to me yeah. was fascinating, like foot shaking, uh, you know. I mean, that, that's the beauty, I think, of alignment. And, and I mean, people who've been in the field a bit longer, they know we had accommodation theory, you have convergent theories. So, so it all comes back to the idea that we are copying that's yes. all we do and that's very natural to do huh? so, monkey, so and, see, and do, we right? can't yeah so and and we can't uh also we can't suppress it so if someone is yawning you start yawning as well i mean in base in very basic ways this is alignment yeah uh, there's gaze alignment so if someone looks and stares at a certain point you're going to look there as well <laughs> yes um just because you think oh what's happening there and and you you really you can't help doing this and that's the beauty i think of alignment that in the sense if we put this back to language again um your learners can't help doing it yeah. and if you train them to use this more strategically and they 
might also be better learners or become more effective mm -hmm. learners because they can actually draw on their model. And that was my last question. How can this theory of alignment in all your work, what are the connections, what are the implications for, uh, of alignment learning? What are the implications for the acquisition of, of a second language? And more importantly, how can teachers, because I think this is the important question, how can teachers apply or, or make use of alignment of this theory in the classroom to help uh, learners acquire the second language? Mm. Yeah, so, so I mean, I think it, it is a very important concept in, in language learning and teaching. Um, how can you use it in a classroom first by, by having models, you know, we know that modeling is extremely important. We already mentioned it earlier in this podcast. Authentic input is important because that's uh, where people get their models from and what they can align to. Um, I think, and that's um, through some research I've done with Brefney O'Rourke, where we actually let people perform tasks and then afterwards we engage them in what we call a stimulator recall interview. So we ask the students to rewatch what they had been doing mm. and tell us, so when did you draw on your partner's language? <laughs> and uh, based on those thoughts from the learners, so what they expressed, we learned a lot as researchers in the sense that the excellent language learners some of them were, were just brilliant they they as said they took every opportunity they got to align to their partner and they did this much more strategically than just um, having it overcome them basically now how can you use this in your classroom um for acquisition, and that's probably also the, the work of Carrie Jackson that you were mentioning before, that shows that learning something new can be quite a challenge through alignment, as said, because if you don't know it, you can't align to it. But I think it's very powerful in uh, training stuff that people tend to avoid. Like the example that I just gave with the subjunctive mood, or you can do the same with subordinate clauses or, or certain structures, passive voice, where, um, I mean, in many ways you could train yourself to only speak in passive for, <laughs> for, for the whole lesson, um, which sounds awkward, but you will find language or you felt, you know, I mean, the song by Susan Vega about I am sitting in the, oh, da, yeah. na, 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 I mean, that's, that's person perfect if you want your students to write a, you know to do a, a continuation task on that I bet they will be using a progressive form because why would they all of us start all, all of a sudden start using past if everything they get is progressive yes. so um, there if you get in that sense an input flood so yes. where where something has been used a lot you can use it and I think it's mainly to train structures in a more authentic, in a more task-based environment, rather than giving them exercises to use yes. progressive form. I mean, give them all the models and tell them to continue on it. And they will, I, I bet you, they will use it, even the structures that they tend to avoid. Yeah. I think it goes back to what we said at the beginning. I think we really need to train people to become better language learners so they yes. can learn not without the teacher but with the support of the teacher i don't think 
And I think this is the biggest assumption that a lot of people make, especially students, that um, teaching leads to learning. I would say, very, and I interviewed Vinicius in our previous podcast, teaching almost never leads to learning or rarely because not everything that you teach is actually what's going to be learned. Um, Mike Long has a very, uh, very interesting quote and in that I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm quoting it correctly, but he says it. something like, like to think that teaching leads to learning is not just simplistic, it's utterly wrong. So, uh, <laughs> and yeah, I, I think that there's, there is no linear relationship between instruction and learning, but um, there is enough research to show that instruction can support learning. Mm-hmm. if it is done in a way that supports learning. And I think that's the beauty of task-based language teaching, to go back to that again, that mm-hmm. I think it is so much based on everything we know about second language acquisition based of research of the past 40 years, that um, we know how it supports learning. And that's that's why you know, finding out about the needs of your learners and then creating tasks that give good models so that your students are pushed to to produce and mm-hmm. motivated to interact and engage with the material and then uh, align to their models and, yes. and come up with brilliant language. And um, yeah, I think that that's all we want in the end. Well, we're running out of time here. Uh, we've taken up too much of your time, Raya, but I would like to finish, to end, to wrap this up with um, what I call the vulnerability round, the rapid fire questions. So I prepared a surprise. I'm gonna ask you <gasps> two questions that are not language related. You already answered the first one, which is if there are any quotes that you live by, and I feel like that quote by Mike Long is actually um, a good one. Do you have any other quotes that you live by? Oh, yeah. I love the one by uh, Hannah Arendt, which is um, in German, it's uh, Es gibt keine gefährlichen Gedanken. Das Denken selbst ist gefährlich. And it basically means that there are no dangerous thoughts. Thinking in itself is dangerous. Ooh. And I love that because I really think we should push our students, but also ourselves to think because thinking helps. Yes. So that's, trust, that's one of my favorites. Trust but verify. Yes. <laughs> yes. And my second question, and this is the last one, if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, of course, getting a message to billions of people in the world, what would it say and why? Ooh. Um, my own personal billboard. I mean, this, this is probably so, going to sound a bit pathetic or so, but I, I mean, I, yeah, just no trust, in your, <laughs> trust in yourself and the ones around you. Um, I have a, I have a very positive perspective on on uh the people around me but probably also on myself in the sense that i just think you know we, we're all trying to do our best and let's believe in that and support that and support others to be able to do that as well yeah beautiful thank you mariah thank you very much this has been a very long interview <laughs> <laughs> thank you, you Leo. yes very do you have any final messages any final comments anything um, your work, you said you have some research coming up, some publications. 
you've been working on a second draft of something or oh second draft yes yeah. so, so the the work with english academy for newcomers with said guck we're putting that into a paper where we talk about um tasks for refugee learners and i said this is this is about academic uh academically oriented learners um I do have quite a few papers on alignment in using chat interactions and if you want to see the tasks that are used in there that can really be implemented in your classroom, I think for German and for Spanish and for English, uh, you can go to the irisdatabase.org, iris-database.org, where you have a set of tasks and the work with Andrea Reves, my big buddy in research about second language writing. Oh, we're gonna have to um, get if her you want to know anything about writing, you can look that up. We're going to have to get her on the podcast. I, I have, uh, we're going to publish everything when we promote the podcast. We have all your publications, you have your work, links to everything. If uh, people want to connect with you on Twitter, at... Sure, at uh, Mareja Michel, and that's spelled M-A-R-I-J-E. M-I-C-H-E-L and I use a H from my Lancaster Northern English Times <laughs> Alright Thank you very much and uh, we'll see you around Thank you Mariah Thank you Leo, thank you Learn Your English You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time brought to you by Learn Your English Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.